Hey, this is Jason and Diego. Before we get started, we wanted to let you know that this is the very last episode of this limited series, which we're a little bummed about, but we are so grateful that you've come along with us on this journey. For all the listeners, thank you guys for tuning in, listening. Thank you for making a difference in your community. Um, what an honor it is just to have a um, family like you, Jason, and everybody out there that's, that's listening that has the same heart that we have. So it's been awesome. Yeah, could not agree more. Well, as we mentioned at the very beginning, you were going to get to meet 18 of the most inspirational people you've ever met. And I know that having all these conversations has made us better. And we really hope that listening to them has made you better as well. You are going to meet the 18th one today. If you ever have days where you wonder if God is real, this is the episode to come back to. All right, let's get to it. Here we go. just didn't really have the support that I think I would have definitely benefited from at that time as a kid. So it was more of just kind of trying to learn how to cope and survive with what I had gone through. This is the Foster Movement Podcast, helping you work with others to provide more than enough for kids and families in foster care where you live. Here are your hosts, Jason Weber and Diego Buller. Hey, this is Jason Weber. Welcome to the Foster Movement Podcast. I'm here with Diego Fuller. Hey, Diego. Yo, what's up, Jason? How you doing today? I'm good. How are you? Man, you know me. I'm doing pretty good, pretty good, pretty good. (laughs) (laughs) Awesome. Awesome. All right. So as a kid, did you play much hide and go seek? Oh, man. All the time. All the time. One of our favorite games. Yeah. So did you like to be the one who hid or did you like to be the one who counted and went and found people? Well, when I when I hide, nobody can find me. And sometimes oh. I hide too long and fall asleep. <laughs> so you're like you're like an expert. <laughs> oh, man, I'm good. I'm good. Hey, I'm curious. Did, did you play? Uh, yeah, sure. So how did y'all count? Was it like one, two to ten or was it five, ten, fifteen, twenty or was it the song? I've never heard of this song. Oh, you never heard the song? The 5, 10, 15, 20, 25, 30. Here I come, ready or not. No, we just counted by ones. Oh, wow. Maybe we, okay. were, <laughs> we were in the remedial hide-and-go-seek uh, right. class. Right. So we just counted by ones. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, there was one time we were playing with our kids when they were like toddlers at the time. Uh-huh. And I won't even name which kid this was, but they went and hid. And, and eventually, it took us a long time, my wife and I, to find right. this kiddo. Oh, man. And uh, she had gone and hid in the hamper. And she was <laughs> quiet. And normally, they would giggle and you could hear right, right. She you was hear, so yeah. quiet. Like, she was the champion. But the thing oh, is, man. she was in there so long that she had a little accident uh. <laughs> in the hamper. <laughs> But even with that, she's right. like, I'm hanging tight. I'm, I'm hanging tight, I'm, right? I'm not going no matter what's going on. Anywhere. I'm, I'm hanging tight. I'm that's winning cool. this. Right. <laughs> so, yeah, awesome. That's, that's awesome. Yeah, well, today we are going to be talking about finding uh, yes. one another and parenting and parenting yeah. kids uh, from hard places, you know, and it just reminds me of our relationship with God. Right. That when. Sometimes we hide, mm-hmm. uh, and he comes after us. Yes, and uh, and parenting kids from hard places is a lot of times it's this journey of not only us finding the the true kid that's inside of that right, kid right. and has experienced trauma, but it's it's the journey of them finding us as well. Amen. Yeah, absolutely. 
Well, we have a really amazing testimony uh, by a former foster youth that we're going to talk to, Joanna Torres, who mm-hmm. professionally now helps uh, a lot of young people in foster care. But awesome. she herself had an amazing story. And so we're eager for you to hear that. And then we're going to hear from Kayla North, who coaches a lot of families uh, through trauma parenting right. and uh, does a great job. She's helped our family a ton. And we really appreciate uh, what her and, and her husband, Ryan, have done. And how awesome. They've helped so many families. So let's get to it. Let's get to the interview, first of all, with Joanna Torres. I'm here with Joanna Torres in Santa Ana, California. Hello, Joanna. Hi. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you. So you came into foster care when you were three years old. Yes, that's correct. Can you tell us a little bit about the circumstances that led you coming into care? Yeah, absolutely. Um, my parents were uh, um, parents that just struggled a lot with substance abuse. Um, there was a lot of domestic violence in the home. So family life was really a hectic. And, um, you know, we lived in the project, so didn't live in always in the best areas. And um, because of the nature of my parents' relationship, the unstableness of it, and um, it just created, you know, a very unhealthy environment for myself and my siblings. And they kind of reached a point where um, my parents fighting just got really bad and um how many siblings did you have i had three other siblings so two sisters and a brother and you were i was the youngest the youngest okay yeah and um it got to the point where my my father was like you know what i think that we should separate and um it's not healthy it's just i don't like the way our relationship is so i think i'm gonna leave and my mom didn't want that and so she ended up leaving with me and hitching a ride um, to get, I guess, I don't know, I'm not exactly sure her reasons why she took me with her, but she did. And and so she hitched a ride with a stranger and um, ended up in this gentleman's home. And as my dad was moving out his stuff. And so when my dad came home, he realized I was gone, my mom was gone, but my other siblings were still at the house. And he didn't know where I was. And um, unfortunately, of a course of events that evening, the gentleman ended up murdering my mother. And um, I was with her when it happened. And he ended up putting my mother and I in the trunk of his car, drove back to um, the city that we lived in. And um, that next morning, a family found me roaming the streets. So that's when my journey in foster care uh, started. It was after that incident. Mm. How many placements do you estimate that you had in your time in care? Um, As far as I can recollect, I think maybe five or six placements. Um, My dad was going through the process trying to reunify with me, so that was the plan. Um, So I had visitation with my dad. So he would visit me um, in the different foster homes, and I got to see him. Um, so as far as I can recollect, it was five, five or six foster placements that I had. Obviously, kids who are <clears throat> in care uh, have experienced trauma of some sort. The kind of trauma you experienced uh, obviously is extremely acute. Um, how... Did you you mentioned having anxiety 
Um, what are some other ways that you feel like um, that experience of trauma played out in uh, your time as a as a kid? Yeah. So um, for me, I definitely I know that I experienced PTSD from that you know, witnessing my mother being murdered. And so that played out in, with anxiety, um, a lot of nightmares at night. I really struggled with a lot of nightmares for a long time as a young kid. Um, And it really affected kind of my cognition and as far as like being able to, like in school, for instance, was really difficult for me. Um, I really had a hard time retaining information. Um, I got held back, you know, in kindergarten because I was just having a really hard time, like learning and like getting to the place that I needed to because of that trauma. Um, I experienced other trauma even in just in some of the foster homes I lived in, and so that added it was kind of like that complex trauma that was happening. Our understanding of trauma and its effect on kids Mm -hmm. uh, has grown a lot uh, since then, right? Mm -hmm. As you mentioned, this was back in the 70s. Right. Right. Was there anybody that seemed to understand that or at least had empathy for you that you recall, whether it was a foster parent or a worker or anybody that seemed to understand the trauma that you'd experienced and how that might be impacting your behavior or performance Mm -hmm. in school? Mm -hmm. Was there anybody like that? Unfortunately, no. I feel like... uh, Nowadays, I, I, it's great to see all the research that's going into that and just really have an understanding of how trauma impacts brain development and um, how kids just develop in general, you know, when they've experienced, especially at such a young age. Um, at that time for me, like, I didn't even, I wasn't even put in therapy, which a lot of kids are in therapy nowadays, which I think is phenomenal. Um, so it was more of I just had to cope and try to survive and get through it without, I just didn't really have the support that I think I would have definitely benefited from at that time as a kid. So it was more of just kind of trying to learn how to cope and survive with what I had gone through. And you eventually came uh, to be adopted? Yes. At 11, correct? That's correct, yeah. Do you remember uh, the circumstances leading up to that or first learning about the possibility of being adopted? Like, Mm -hmm. what do you remember about that? Yeah. So, um, I was in this foster home, um, for a significant amount of time and it was leading up to my, um, eighth birthday. And I remember my social worker telling me that, um, my dad was going to be going away and I wasn't going to see him anymore for a while. Didn't really know what that meant. Wasn't understanding like kind of what was going on, but she said, Hey, this is going to be a final visit with your dad. Mm-hmm. And so when we had that visit, my dad, in the best way, he was trying to tell me, like, hey, um, I'm not going to see you for some time, but one day I'm going to come find you. Uh, but there's a family that, you know, you might potentially uh, get to have a mom and dad and they're going to adopt you. It's like, what, what is this? What do you mean? Like, right. I wanted my dad. That's all I wanted. That's all I knew. Right. Um, and so that was a real pivotal moment for me. Um, very devastating. And uh, it was probably one of the hardest days of my life, having to say goodbye to my dad and knowing that he was, in my mind as a kid, he was leaving me. You said that you wanted him. Like, that's what you wanted. So him telling you that over time, how did your feelings about him 
stay the same or change? Like, did that turn to anger towards him or did mm-hmm. that turn to something else? Like, wh- how did that work? I think for me, and I think this is probably common with a lot of foster kids, like, I just always said one day I'm going to find my dad. I want to know my dad. Um, I love my dad. Like, in my mind, I pictured him a certain kind of way. Like, I didn't know all of the things about my dad and how he struggled and the things that he was maybe not the good choices that he was making in his life. To me, he was just dad. And so over the years, I always thought of him like, okay, when I get to the age that I can, I'm, I'm going to find my dad. I want to know my dad. I, um, There's just something about like identity that's connected in that, you know, um, and just kind of knowing who you are. Um, so I just had determined in my mind that one day I was going to try to find my dad. Do you remember adoption day at all? It's kind of vague, actually. Um, it's, inter- it's a very interesting situation. I always find, like, how do I share this sometimes with people? Because, you know, adoption is such a great thing, and it can be so positive, but sometimes it doesn't always work out really great. And in my case, um, it wasn't the best uh, situation. You know, there was abuse and things that were going on. So the day of adoption was kind of a blur for me. So were there things already happening by the time that adoption Mm -hmm. was finalized that made it not a great situation. Yeah, exactly. Mm. And one of the things that was kind of interesting, although I don't remember it really well, but I remember them, they changed my name. And down the road, I always thought like, why did they change my name? But I don't know if it was because they really wanted me to be like their daughter and really feel a sense of like I was theirs. Um, But that was kind of a weird transition for me too. Like, um, going from what my name was and then all of a sudden having a new name. So you mentioned feeling like who you were was erased mm-hmm. when your name was changed. Mm-hmm. You have a new family, a new name, you're 11 years old. How did that feeling contribute to who you were as a teenager mm-hmm. and how you behaved and what you did? Yeah, so... When I moved in with this family, they they are they were you know a faith believing family and went to church. And so at eight, I found God. You know, I, I um, really was drawn to God and clung to Him. Like it just become some it come, became something very important to me. So because I had that faith in church, I think that really helped give me a little bit more grounding. Although I still struggled. So for me, it wasn't so much like overly rebellious behavior or any violence or anything like that, but it was more of um, intense anxiety, um, the nightmares, and then the school was a real struggle for me. So that's where it manifested for me. Um, and then just always that that deep-rooted insecurity of, I don't really know who I am and you know who, who do I really want to be? Um, and then just because of the dynamics of the family that my family that was going on, um, there was just that deep-rooted sense of, like, I don't belong here. I don't belong here. I don't feel loved. I don't feel accepted. Um, but I'm going to try to just get through it. And so my faith really played a significant part in, I think, just my journey and healing and getting to where I finally got to. But I think um, anxiety was the biggest thing. I really, really struggled with anxiety. Um, I remember sixth grade. Um, my parents went to a parent-teacher conference. This was a, a very pivotal moment for me. So up until that point, school was tough. I struggled in school. I wanted to learn. Um, I wanted to be smart. I wanted those things, but it just didn't come easy for me. But no one really took the time to understand why. It was more of like, oh, she doesn't care. She doesn't want to learn. She's not interested in school. 
So my sixth grade teacher ended up telling my parents that she didn't see me ever graduating from high school. She didn't think I had it in me to do it. And she's like, I, I definitely don't ever see her going to college. So don't ever expect that from her. She just doesn't have it, what it takes. Were you there during that conversation? Or did you just remember hearing that? Uh, they ended up telling me that. My, I wasn't at the parent conference. My parents just ended up telling me, like, hey, we went to conferences of what your teacher said about you. And I remember it was kind of a double-edged sword. On one end, it created an even deeper root of insecurity for me, but then it also put a fire in me as well that I felt like, you know what? I'm not who you say I am. You don't know who I am, Mm -hmm. so I'm going to prove you wrong. And so it, it put that fire in me. So going into like junior high, high school, like I was just so focused on proving them wrong, that that's not true. And I am doing really well. I mean, it was a struggle. I had to work really hard for my grades, but I ended up getting A's and B's and um, leaving junior high with a really good GPA. And then going into high school, I ended up graduating with a good GPA and part of the National Honor Society. So then going into high school, I did really well. I worked really hard. Uh, ended up with like a 3.5 GPA, which was huge for me. And then uh, being a part of the National Honor Society. So it was really exciting and I felt so accomplished, like I showed you. Like, I did it, yeah. I graduated. Um, and then I went on to get my bachelor's and my master's degree, so. You mentioned that following that meeting with your biological dad, that he was the one that you wanted. And that you always just thought, I'm going to find him again someday. Mm -hmm. Um, Did you end up looking for him again? I did. When I was 19, I kind of went through the process of, you know, sending a letter into social services saying, hey, I'd like to find my dad. If you have any information, I'd like to, you know, find a way to connect with my dad. And they ended up sending me a letter um, with basic information but they're like unfortunately we don't know where he is so you know if he ever reaches out to us we'll let you know kind of a thing and I just was so disappointed because I thought man this is like my chance to like know my dad and so I just really prayed about it and um at the time I worked at a clinic um where people come in for like massages and like uh, physical therapy I was a receptionist there and one of the patients that weren't there was just really nice gentleman and one day we just got to talking and he ended up telling me that he was an undercover investigator we just got into this conversation just random one day and so I was like hey I want to find my dad like what do I do how do I do that can you give me some advice and he's like you know you're such a nice young lady like um I'll help you if I have any information, I'll see what I can find for you. Wow. It was incredible. Like, what? How, is this really happening? <laughs> wow. And you had been praying. I had been praying about it, yeah. And so I, all I had was my dad's name and I think his date of birth. And I was like, this is all I have. And he's like, okay, you know, give me a couple of weeks and I'll see what I can find. So I have access to all the ways of finding people and then I'll let you know. About a week later, he came in and he's like, I found your dad. This um, is pre-internet. Pre-internet. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And I, I was just kind of blown away. And he's like, hey, do you know about your dad? And I was like, I don't remember much about him, honestly. And he goes, well, just be careful. He has a history. He's been out of jail, has quite a record. So I don't know what kind of man he is, but this is where he is. Here's his address. And I just remember my heart just racing, thinking like, wow, like I'm actually going to like finally connect with my dad again after all these years. During that time... What did you, did you, did you fantasize about what your dad, who your dad would be and what that meeting would be like? 
I totally did. Absolutely. I always imagined like my dad was going to come and rescue me mm-hmm. from everything I'd been going through and all my pain and he was going to make everything okay. I just imagined this guy married with kids and just kind of really fantasized this whole story in my mind of who he was going to be. And so when you met him, what was it like? Definitely not what I imagined. <laughs> um, it was exciting in the sense like this is my dad. This is my flesh and blood, which had so much meaning to me. Um, but definitely uh, not the person I would have, have imagined. You know, he was a kind of a hardcore guy, covered in tattoos, lived a pretty hard life, was just um, kind of getting clean and sober from substance abuse. And so it was really, really different for me, especially being you know, a Christian girl raised in a really strict family household, um, and then meeting this guy who's just so worldly. Um, it, was, it was definitely different. Take us to that moment. Were you, was it a phone call to begin with? Or mm-hmm. did you just show up at his door? Like, How did that work? It's actually a really cool story. So um, after the gentleman gave me my dad's information, I wrote this long letter. And I figured, well, if this is truly my dad, he's going to know like about what happened to my mom. And um, so I kind of wrote in there like, this is what happened. This is what ended up separating us and this and that. And I put in a picture of me when I was little. And then a picture of me in my high school picture and like, this is who I am now. And I mailed it off. So right at that same time, my dad overdosed on heroin and, um, or not overdosed, but he, well, yeah, but he, he got through it. Um, and, um, some friends in his life at the time said, Hey, like you probably should get some help and maybe go through some recovery. Like your, your addiction is like getting really bad. So he decided to sign himself into like a inpatient recovery. So my dad, um, began this journey of recovery. And later on, he tells me the story that he just was really having a hard time. Uh, just the process of, um, getting off of heroin especially is pretty harsh and so he just wasn't feeling good and just really struggling with it and kept contemplating like do I really want to do this do I really want to do this well they had like you know individual therapy groups and so in one of the groups you know meeting this young lady that he says was like overly positive and like happy and he's like it really bothered me because I just didn't get why she was like that and one day he was like hey man what's up with you like you're always smiling and like overly friendly and she's just like you know what um I'm a Christian and I believe in God and so she said you know God just kind of gives me that peace to get through each day and she said I and um I have what's called a God box and I put in prayer requests every day like this is what I need help with for my day and it helped me get through and my dad's like well I don't believe in God so I think that's weird but okay and she's like, well, you know, that's just what works for me. That's what's helping me get through this recovery. Hmm. So I don't know, a few days we had gone by and she's like, she came up to my after group one day and she's like, you know, I want to give you my God box and I want to encourage you to give it a try. Wow. And so he's like, well, I don't believe in God. So why would I want to do that? She goes, just give it a try. I can see you're really struggling. So one night he was in his room and he said he started thinking about me. And he's like, man, if I could just find my daughter, that would mean everything to me. And so he looked at the God box on his de- on his dresser, and he was just like, hmm, I wonder if I should give this a try or not. So he said he got a piece of paper, and he wrote down on a piece of paper, God, if you could just give me my daughter back, I'll get my life together. 
and he folded it up. He put it in the God box. He said he got on his knees. He's like, I didn't know how to pray. I didn't even know if I was doing it right. He's like, and I just pray, like, God, please just give me back my daughter. So he said his prayer, went to bed, and a week later he got my letter. And he said that he was completely blown away, like, I, I can't believe this is my daughter. Like, this is really her. It's, and he said it was for the first time in many, many years. He, he just broke down and started crying. And he's like, okay, maybe, maybe there is a God. Maybe God is real. And so he ended up writing me back. And we just started kind of writing each other at first. Then we started talking on the phone. And then we finally made plans to meet in person. And um, so we ended up meeting at a mall. And it was... Man, so exciting, but I was so nervous. I didn't quite know what to expect, but it just, there was just something about seeing someone that's like your flesh and blood, your family. And I just was aside, beside myself with excitement. And my dad was nervous too, but excited. And it was just a really special moment. He brought me flowers and just having him hug me. It was just like, man, like I've been dreaming about this day. And we just began a relationship, getting to know each other. Um, it was not easy, not easy at all. Um, we really struggled through the journey of getting to know each other again. Do you maintain a relationship with your dad? I do. Yeah. Yeah. We still, we have a much better relationship now. It's great. Uh, we had, we went through some ups and downs, even a period of time we didn't talk to each other. You know, he had all these expectations. I had all these expectations and they just weren't happening. So we had mm -hmm. to learn to just let go of all of that and just um, reestablish a relationship with where we're at and, and being okay with like, we can't make up for lost time. You know, it just is where we're, this is where we are at and this is what it is and just move forward. You had imagined what things would be like, what he would be like. Um, and you mentioned that those expectations didn't come to be real. Mm -hmm. um, do you think that he had expectations of what you would be like? I don't think so much about what I would be like, but I think he definitely had these expectations of a relationship. Like, I'm your dad, and I'm back in your life now, and I'm going to be your dad now. And I was like, well, I'm already 19. Like, I'm going into adulthood like I don't need a parent but I do want to get to know you and have a relationship with you and I have parents and um, I think that was the hardest thing for him you know being able to accept that knowing what I went through with them when I ended up sharing with him the abuse that I went through like he was pretty devastated he felt he had failed me because he had imagined I was going to have this safe great home and then to hear that I went through the things that I went through but for him he had a hard time wrapping his brain around like forgiveness and what God taught, teaches about forgiving and loving people and that, and that I, I was choosing to still love my parents and have a relationship with them and to work on forgiveness or in his mind, like you shouldn't even see them or talk to them anymore. Mm. And so I think that was something that we had to really work through. Mm -hmm. It strikes me that we often use the phrase, you know, uh, we picked up where we left off, right? The, this idea that when you don't see somebody for a time, but when you're talking about this kind of a situation when you left off at eight years old and you pick back up at 19, um, you both are completely different people at that point. Mm -hmm. We both were grown up. My dad was a young father. He was 19 when I was born. So we both just kind of, we both said like, wow, we've grown up now. We're at a different place in our life. Like you're right. It's not the same. It's not like it was back in that day. 
And so really learning to get to know each other and just build a relationship moving forward and understanding each other, you know, who I was as an individual and who he was as an individual. And um, just working through that and awesomely enough through our journey, he ended up accepting Christ and becoming saved and really, really, truly turned his life around and got clean and sober and hasn't used since. And um, really just uh, became a different person from the life that he had lived previously. You now professionally work with young people, Mm -hmm. uh, teenagers who are uh, transitioning out of foster care into adulthood. Mm -hmm. Obviously, you have so many ways in which you can relate uh, to them. What do you find is the piece or pieces of your experience that help you best connect with teenagers who are going through some of the things you went through? So I think the biggest way that I feel like I connect with the kids is so many of them struggle with that identity piece. Um, feeling like they really have a good sense of who they are and needing a sense of belonging, all of that. So that piece I really get and I can connect with the kids. And so many kids too struggle in school. It's a common thing, you know? And so really being able to sympathize with them, but encouraging them and championing them to do great, that you can overcome it. If I can overcome it, you can too. And I always tell my story about that sixth grade teacher. And I was like, this is what she said about me, but look where I am today. So you can do it too. And so a lot of times the kids are like, okay, okay, I can do this. I can do this. Like if you're saying you can do it, then I'm going to give it a good try. And like all my kids have graduated and moved on. Maybe it was a rough journey in the process, but they get, they get to that, that finish line, which is exciting. Well, thank you so much for spending the time. Thank you for what you do. And, um, thank you for how you take some of the terrible things that have happened to you that should never happen to a child but you allow God to use you to make a difference in the lives of others. Mm-hmm. Thank you. So, man, uh, is that story not an unbelievable uh, man testimony to the reality of God? Man, it's, it's God all over that. It's amazing. Something that you see on a movie, you'd be like, man, is this true? Yeah. yeah it's, it's, it's powerful. It's amazing. I think, man, it just speaks volume, man, on just the love, man, that God have. Mm. Uh, mm. He's he's always looking to find us, right? Oh, just always. like just like uh, Joanna and her dad uh, mm-hmm. found one another, right? Um, man. God uh, finds us. Yeah, he seeks us out. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. And, and isn't that our job as dads is to to pursue our kids, mm-hmm. to go after them, to mm-hmm. find them. We serve the God of pursuit who has pursued us Amen. in the midst of our sin. And while we were still sinners, yes. Yes. Christ died for us and he has come after us. And so, Pre- man, preach that, brother. <laughs> preach that word, brother. Nah. So we we want to represent God's heart of pursuit yes. in the lives of children. Amen. Right? And we want to pursue them uh, into the hard places. And we have the privilege of being able to explore that <clears throat> with Kayla North uh, here in just a minute. But before we get there, uh, I just want to make sure that everybody listening has had a chance to check out the brand new morethanenoughtogether.org right. website. Uh, More Than Enough Together is a collaborative movement facilitated by the KFO community. It is a lot of organizations and a lot of churches saying, you know what? 
this narrative that we've been telling about foster care, that we've been believing about foster care for so long that says there's not enough. Right. Uh, it's just, it's not okay because right. when we say that there's not enough, what we're saying is there's just some kids that aren't going to get what they need. There's just exactly. some families that aren't going to get loved exactly. like they need to be loved. And <clears throat> we're saying, you know, that's not acceptable. And we believe that we live in a, in a world where it is possible to see more than enough. We believe yes. we serve a God of more yes. than enough. And so we're banding together and you have the opportunity to go there. Just go to more than enough together.org and let's see 10% of churches in your County yes. actively engaged in foster care. And we believe that's enough to get to more than enough. Amen. Amen. All right. So let's go to our interview with Kayla North and we are going to dive deep into parenting kids from hard places. Here we go. I'm here talking to Kayla North. Hello, Kayla. How are you? Hey, Jason. I'm doing well. Thank you so much for uh, being a part of the podcast. I appreciate it. Yeah, absolutely. Glad I could do it. So we're talking about parenting and specifically parenting kids from hard places. Now, one of the things that I think has been true over the past many years as we in the church have gotten more involved in uh, recruitment and trying to find parents for kids is there is a big temptation to sort of play this off a little bit. I think even, you know, maybe this was more the case several years ago where we sort of just wanted to say, well, you know, parenting kids um, who uh, come from foster care or come from institutional settings, uh, you know, it's there, there are hard things, but there are hard things with, with uh, biological kids. You know, we have difficulties with all kids. And so we sort of tried to uh, minimize the differences. But uh, what would you say about the differences between parenting a child who has come from a hard place, come from trauma, and parenting a child who maybe has not experienced those same kinds of things? So really what I find the differences in parenting kids that have experienced trauma versus parenting biological kids is the difference in their ability to trust me as their caregiver to really meet their needs. So when I have my biological kids they know that I'm going to meet their needs because I've met their needs from the very beginning. Whereas when I've brought in kids through foster care, so um, my husband and I um, fostered for 10 years and we had about 30 different kids through our home in that 10 year period of time. And so we, um, we saw lots of different kids. We saw kids that came to us as infants um, that were going through um, drug withdrawals. Um, we saw kids that came from domestic abuse situations. Um, we saw kids that um, just had some pretty severe sensory needs because of their history. And so parenting those kids, I had to find what their needs were and meet their needs. But the problem is that kids don't say to me, well, I need to trust you. And so if you would just do some things that helped me trust you, then I would, you know, my behavior would be better, right? Instead, what happens is their needs are expressed as behaviors and unwanted behaviors, right? And so when we, um, when we're parenting these kids that have these really big behaviors, the, the inclination is to want to tighten in the reins and put a lot more structure and put a lot more, um, 
restrictions and consequences. And that, that tends to be the, um, the way that traditional parenting has said, this is what we should do. But when we're parenting kids from hard places, what they really need is they need a lot more nurture because maybe they've missed out on that in their past experiences. Um, and so while there has to be structure, there also has to be a balance of nurture. Um, and I think that that was really hard to learn um, because the nurture comes pretty naturally when you have a relationship with a kid already. Um, when you're parenting your biological kids, you've been nurturing them from the moment they came you know, from the moment you first held them. But when you're parenting, all of a sudden you have a five-year-old that's placed in your home. You don't remember those days of loving and rocking and cuddling this little baby, right? And so um, it's just a different world and you have to be prepared for that when you are bringing in these kids into your home. And I think sometimes we don't want to talk about that because we're like, I love children and I'll be fine with any kid that comes into my home and I'll love them. And that's where I came from, right? I came from this, I'm going to love any kid because I always have, I've always had this love for kids. But when you've got these really difficult behaviors, it makes it a lot harder to view those behaviors as an expression of a need. So I think a lot of us, I mean, we have a pretty good picture of what uh, bad parenting is, right? Like what we know, like if, um, if, if a kid says just no, they're just defiant, they will not do what you ask them to do. I think all of us can imagine what a, what, what a bad parenting move is. And, and, uh, you know, very likely I've, uh, practiced such, uh, responses probably in the last <laughs> couple of days to be completely honest. Um, but, uh, talk a little bit about what a traditional, um, good parenting response is, um, and what that would normally be, uh, and why that may not be sufficient, uh, in the case of a child who's come from trauma and then what a, a more connected, uh, parenting response would be. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. So kind of our, um, when you talk about traditional parenting, a lot of what we do in traditional parenting is reactive in nature. So we're reacting to, um, a behavior. And I think with, um, with these kids, especially that come from a trauma background, we have to be a lot more proactive um, and a little less reactive um, because obviously we have to react when there's a behavior we need to deal with. But oftentimes we can even um, we can even pay attention to patterns of behaviors that we're seeing, and we can begin to say, "Okay, it looks like every day around this time, this child is melting down. I wonder what could be behind that." And we can begin to investigate. Maybe they are needing a snack. Maybe it's been too long since they've had a snack. Um, and so, starting to to kind of really bring in some proactive strategies um, and not just reactive strategies. But then, some other things that may have worked with biological kids, like perhaps a uh, timeout. Um, timeout is something that's pretty common. It's pretty standard parenting practices. Um, and yet with our kids that come from hard places, they have, um, they've experienced abandonment. They've experienced isolation. And so timeout doesn't work well with them because timeout says, you know, go away and come back when you can behave better. 
But what we would use is more of a time in principle where we would say, um, I'm going to stick with you and I'm going to help you regulate because you don't have the skills yet to be able to self-regulate and to be able to handle whatever has caused this meltdown. So, and, and time, time in looks more like, um, I'm going to meet whatever needs you might have. It's not a, it's not a discipline per se. It's more of a helping a child to regulate and more of a connected way to say, okay, when this kid is melting down, it means that they need my help versus they need my punishment. Um, also being able to, um, you know, I, I'm like you, I, I came, I, I've done many of the wrong things and many disconnected things, right. Even in the last few days. Um, so I don't always get it right, but I think when we can, when we can view some of the, the interactions with the kids differently, then it helps us to be able to like regulate our voice. Right. So what we might have, you know, with a biological kid, we might've been able to just raise our voice just a little and then they knew we were serious and then the behavior would stop. Right. Whereas with um, these kids from hard places, we raise our voice and then they raise their voice and then things begin to escalate and things don't go the way we thought they would. Because again, they don't trust us yet. They don't trust that we're going to um, be able to handle it. And so um, it becomes a little bit of a power struggle um, and voices escalate. And so what, what might've worked with a, with a biological kid um, of just being able to let them remember that you've got this and you're in charge um, might be viewed as a threat to kids from hard places. So I think it's probably safe to assume that there are people listening to this right now who are hearing you, they're listening to you, and they're saying, Kayla, that sounds a little soft to me. That sounds a little permissive. You know, talking about a kid melting down and our response is give them a snack. Um, right. Our kid is disrespectful and, and saying, come hang out with me. Like, that sounds like you are letting them get away with murder. Uh, tell, tell us why, um, tell us the difference between what you're talking about and what truly is permissive parenting. Yeah. So permissive parenting is, is letting a kid do whatever they want and run the show. Right. And I've seen a lot of it. Um, and, and it can actually be pretty common with foster parents because, we usually tend to go one, one extreme or the other, either we're really permissive because we kind of feel sorry for the kids. They've come from a really hard place. And, and so we tend to not want to rock the boat with them. We don't want to, you know, we don't want to cause a meltdown. So we just give in to what they're saying or what they want or what they're, you know, and that's not at all what it is. Um, the other extreme is that what we talked about earlier is having too much structure and kind of coming down really hard and, and making sure they understand. And I think it's finding that, that in between kind of that happy medium where we say, um, I'm in control, but I recognize that sometimes in the situation, this child has a need that hasn't been met. They have an underlying, um, need for something. That's so good. So can you give just a, a practical example? Because I think one of the things about this kind of parenting that uh, really struck me when I first started learning about it was, you know, in theory, you, you start a, you sort of get it uh, a little bit, but when you actually see somebody do it, and I remember seeing, you know, um, 
Dr. Karen Purvis in, in videos or hearing her speak and sharing about the things that she actually said, the little scripted things that she always um, said, like, are you asking or telling when a, a child might demand something? Those things are, were the things that were just gold. They were, they were so helpful. Yeah. Can you give an example of a child who yeah. um, is uh, maybe having a really hard time? Uh, you've said no to them. Uh, you're at the grocery store. They've asked for something and you are not in a position to, to, to get that for them. And, and they're, they're starting to, to melt down. What would you practically do uh, in that situation? Yeah. So, well, first I'd just avoid the grocery store, <laughs> but in the moment, um, I have been known to sit down with that child on the floor, um, and, help them calm or even just leave the store and come back later. Um, because in that moment it's really hard. Right. Um, so helping them calm is going to look different for every kid. So let's say that the child has, um, asked you to buy a certain cereal and you are literally running into the store to get bread and milk because you're out, right? You've just, you've just gone in to get a couple of things and cereal is not on your list. Um, so first I would look and say, you know, I would see, is it in my power to say yes to what they're asking for? Um, and I would help them ask in a way that was appropriate because sometimes maybe they will demand, they'll say, buy me the lucky charms, right? And I'm not going to give in to a demanding child, but if they said, could we please get the lucky charms. Now, maybe I am not going to buy that particular cereal, but I say you can choose between this one or this one. So I might give them a choice of two things that I would buy. Um, or I would give them, I would let them ask for a compromise. Maybe, um, they're asking me to buy a toy. Um, and my policy is we're not buying toys if it's not your birthday or Christmas. And so, um, for like in our house, our kids can earn money for things so that they can, um, they can buy their toys, but that's not always possible. Um, it's not always, I guess, uh, it's a long distance goal for some of these kids that are in our home because of foster care, right? They see it, they want it, they must have it. And so they begin to melt down because this is their favorite toy they've always wanted. They, you know, they must have it right then and there. And so it might not be in my power to buy that toy right then, but we can come to some sort of a compromise where we say, here's what we're, we're going to make an agreement on how we can get that toy or, um, how we can, maybe we tell them before we come into the store, you have this much of a budget to buy toys. You have $5, you have $10 that we're going to buy. So, Really knowing the kids is helpful because you've got to know what's going to help them calm in that moment. Um, because sometimes we do have to say no. We can't say yes to every request that we have. Um, and so I know for me, a lot of that just was a lot of, again, I say this, practicing outside the moment. Um, before we went into the store, I would make my expectations clear. When we come into the store, we are not buying toys today repeat after me. We are not buying toys today, right? I mean, we just have to make sure they understand that's not what we're doing. And still, they're going to ask you for a toy, right? And in that moment, you can say, remember how we're not buying toys today? You know, um, so I don't know if that's super helpful because in the moment, it's really hard to deal with the with it other than helping them use their words to have a choice or a compromise in that moment. Let me ask you this because 
one of the things that we see all the time is that when people are considering foster care and adoption, a lot of times they do have exposure to uh, content, to training, to podcasts like this that sort of talk about the realities of parenting kids from hard places. We talk about the behaviors, we talk about the responses. And yet when we actually get into parenting uh, kids from hard places, some of those behaviors still take us by surprise. I mean, we have been uh, parenting kids from hard places for 18 years now. And to this day, uh, I am still surprised by things <laughs> that I see. <laughs> and, you know, it's it's like pre-marriage counseling, right? You get all the pre-marriage counseling uh, in the world, you know, they can warn you about all kinds of things. But when you get six months in and you are picking up your spouse's socks um, off the floor for the 2000th time, um, all of that, all of that stuff goes out the window. So why do you think it is that this catches us by surprise still. Yeah, I think on some level, I think God puts a little bit of blinders on us. Um, because if we actually knew the reality of how hard it was going to be, we might get too scared to do it. Um, and so I think that we hear these things and we, we, we view them through whatever our lens is, right? When we came into foster care, I had nannied for many years for large families. I felt like I had seen a lot of things. So when I heard some of the difficulties with um, parenting and how things were going to be different, I was like, yeah, for some people it might be, but not for me. Um, and so that was kind of the lens I view it, viewed it through. And then that first kid that was challenging had me curled up in the fetal position crying, going, what am I doing wrong? Mm. Why is this not working? And it, I had to go back through that same training and say, okay, tell me again what I'm supposed to do in that moment. And then I could hear it even better. So I think it's valuable to have the training ahead of time and to hear, but just knowing that everybody's viewing it through their lens of their own experience. And until they have that child in their home, the reality of it is not going to sink in. And, and there are some kids that are, that are fairly easy and fairly low, fairly low key. And so I've even seen foster parents who've had some fairly easy placements that have come to their home and they're like, yeah, this traditional parenting works just fine. I mean, this kid, things are going well. And then they get this, this new kiddo and they go, oh my gosh, what's going on? What am I doing wrong? Because what they were using wasn't working. And so I think at some point it's just God's protection of us and allowing us to, um, to do something that is outside of what we might've done if we'd mm. known how hard it was. Yeah, I, I agree. And I, yeah. I want, uh, our listeners to know where they can hear, uh, more from you and Ryan on these issues. Tell us uh, where they can go to yeah. learn more from you guys. Yeah. So we have a podcast called the empowered parent podcast. Um, and we just do just parenting, just kind of, kind of like what we've been talking about, but we do specific topics. Um, so you can kind of search by, you know, topic that you're struggling with, um, and just little bite-sized nuggets of how would I handle this situation? Really practical stuff. Um, and then we also have a blog, onebighappyhome.com. Um, and then you can also find, um, you know, writings on tapestryministry.org. Um, and empoweredtoconnect.org has some of our writing on there as well. Um, I think those are all good resources. I'm like you. It's like, I think conferences are 
great pep rallies that get us moving in the right direction, but it can't be all that we do. We have to have just constant learning. I'm constantly reading things, um, listening to people who have gone before me, who have, um, more experience, who have learned different things. I go to trainings, um, because I'm, I'm pouring into people often, but I have to be poured into as well. I have to have that. Um, we always used to tell people that, um, I still do, I guess, um, that I'm, I'm a, so much of a better parent when I'm actually teaching others mm-hmm. and constantly in that learning phase, because it's hard to, you know, teach people that you should give your kids choices and offer them compromises and then yell at your kids and tell them just go to their room because they're being horrible. Right. I mean, you, they don't, they don't live in tandem together. Right. If you're in community with people, if you're, if you're doing these things, um, then you're more likely to continue doing them at home. If you're with other people who are like-minded and doing those things too. Yeah. Well said. Well said. One of the words that you said that I really resonate with is learner. Uh, If anything, parenting this way requires a real um, investment in lifelong learning to learn what it means to help kids to enter into um, their distress uh, and help them and help walk with them through that. So thank you so much, Kayla, for what you and Ryan do to help so many families uh, do that. Um, Again, tell us the name of the podcast. It's the Empowered Parent Podcast. Awesome. Thank you so much for being with us. Absolutely. Thanks for inviting me. Great talking to Kayla North, as always. She has uh, fantastic wisdom and insight. Yes. A lot, of, a lot, of, a lot of insight. Very smart. Yeah, yes. yeah. I, you know, this whole idea that we talked about at the beginning, this idea of hide and seek, and the idea that you know God is always pursuing us, and that it's our job to go and and pursue the kids that are in our home and and find right. them and help right. to find them Most and definitely. help them to find us. Uh, it's a dance. It's not easy, but absolutely worth it. Well, uh, we are so grateful that you were able to join us. We want to thank our guests. Uh, We want to thank Joanna Torres and Kayla North, and uh, we want to thank, specifically, we'd like to thank Olive Crest. You know, some of these uh, interviews that we've been doing lately uh, are from uh, former foster youth that uh, Olive Crest has introduced us to. It's a great agency um, out west on the West Coast, and um, they were fantastic. So we want to thank them for that. And we want to thank you for listening. If you're interested in learning more about the foster journey and and this process, and it's something that you are thinking about, thinking about foster parenting, and uh, or maybe you are somebody who helps others uh, navigate through the foster journey, we've got a resource for you for that very purpose. It's called the foster journey, and you can find it on the CAFO website. So go there and learn more about that. Uh, We'd love to have you visit us on our Facebook page and the Foster Movement Podcast page on Facebook. And if you want to see the show notes for today, go to fostermovementpodcast.org. That's fostermovementpodcast.org. Again, grateful for you. So grateful for everything that you're doing in the community where you live uh, for kids before, during, and beyond foster care. And we are here to help you do that until there's more than enough. This has been the Foster Movement Podcast. Join Jason Weber and Diego Fuller next time 
as they and their guests help you work with others to provide more than enough for kids and families in foster care where you live. Hey, this is Jason and Diego again. Yes, and we're still here because there's a couple of things that we want you guys to know. That's right. First of all, be sure to download the free PDF we created, especially for listeners of this podcast. It's called Key Things Former Foster Youth Want You to Understand About Caring for Current Foster Youth. This thing is beautiful and full of wisdom and insight from those who've been there. And I'm telling you, you need to print these babies out and give them to foster parents and applicants you work with because these things are amazing. Just go to morethanenoughtogether.org backslash free download. That's morethanenoughtogether.org backslash free download. Also, as you know, the Foster Movement Podcast is a limited series of just 18 episodes. But listen, it's okay. Don't be sad. Here's why. Because there's more where that came from. Tell them, Jay. That's right. More Than Enough has produced a whole family of podcasts, one of which is called the More Than Enough Podcast. So to learn more, go to morethanenoughtogether.org and click on the podcast link at the top of the homepage, and they are all there. Hey, and one last thing. Thank you for listening. It's a privilege to be a part of your journey. Our team is here to help you work with others in your community to provide for children and families before, during, and beyond foster care until there's more than enough.